honey, I love a luxurious moment, but I also love luxury that like doesn't cost quite so much. Then I discovered Quince and it was a total game changer. They have so many different items to choose from. They have washable silk tops and timeless 14 karat gold jewelry. And the best part is that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. Thanks, Quince. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. Indulge in affordable luxury, honey. Go to quince.com slash curious for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash curious to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash curious. Let's face it. I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon, and neither should you. But what I should stop doing is paying for me time with whatever random credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times the points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? Honey, is it like a gorgeous free flight that you would have had to have paid for, but honey, you're saving that flight money. Is it a gorgeous room upgrade? Is it like a gorgeous, like two bedroom suite instead of a one bedroom suite? So you're like in-laws or like your friend could stay over there in that room. So you don't have to like hear them doing whatever with what they're doing in your, your guys's room. Is it like really adulting? Oh, I love adulting. And you know what else I love? is not waiting to make smart financial decisions. I also love paying my credit cards off in full every month because like, yes, good credit. So let's like do try to do that and like making responsible decisions, which we love. Um, But anyway, don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. This episode of Getting Curious was recorded before the massacre in Orlando, and I wanted to just take a moment to express just some, you know, obviously we've all had our own stages of grieving and our own experience with the tragedy, but, you know, for me, I've really noticed, I've really felt a a very visceral feeling of anger and feeling that it's really important that we do not drop the conversation on gun control And I do not want this to be one more act of violence that we have to get used to. So um, one site that I found that I wanted to talk about before we get started is uh, whoismyvoice.com. I really encourage you guys to tell your friends, tell your mom, tell your dad, tell your uncle, aunt, anyone that will listen. Get on whoismyvoice.com. Find out who's taking money from the NRA. And let's figure out how to get people that are really worried about our safety as a country and as a community into office because that is where we can really affect change. And with that being said, let's get started on this episode of Getting Curious. Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. And this episode, I am so excited to welcome Dr. Alan Weinstein. He was a part of the LIGO study, which confirmed the existence of gravitational waves. And I'm very curious about what this means, because when I read about it on BBC and on Huffington Post, a lot of it went right over my head. I will forewarn you that you're talking to someone that when I was a freshman in college and I signed up for astronomy, I thought that I was going to go learn about Aries and Pisces and Taurus. I was very upset at the mathematical equations that I was faced on that whiteboard. Um, I did not do well in that class. Sorry to hear about that. <laughs> um, it's okay. It's okay. It's water under the bridge. But so basically what I understand is, and and I'd like to just 
in two sentences tell you what I know or what I think I know. So what I think I know is, is Einstein had the theory of relativity, which like predicted that there was going to be these gravitational waves, which I have no idea what those are. But that was in like 1916. And then, but there was no technology to like, you know, make sure that that was true. But then in like 1974, there was another man who like confirmed that they are there because like some mathematical equation matched this one thing that he did or what Einstein predicted, but there was still no like visual proof. And then this year we actually got like the proof in the pudding that, that these waves exist. Something like that. Okay. Absolutely. First of all, um, it's not LIGO, it's LIGO. LIGO. LIGO stands for the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. And, of course, that's a mouthful, so that's why we just let it roll off the tongue as LIGO. LIGO. And LIGO is actually a, it's a, it's a large project. It's run by Caltech and MIT for the National Science Foundation. We have two detectors, two gravitational wave detectors. One is in southern Louisiana. One is in eastern Washington state, as far as we could get from too much noise like the world around us. Um, And we partner with other detectors like that around the world, including in Italy, in uh, Japan, in Germany, and in, we hope, eventually, um, India. So uh, let's see. Let's go back to Einstein. So Einstein had two theories of relativity. Um, The first was the special theory of relativity, which is about E equals MC squared and nothing goes faster than the speed of light. And then he applied it to gravity. And that's the general theory of relativity. And in this really revolutionary way of, of thinking about things, he envisioned that space and time were not a simple, static, peaceful place, but um, were linked together as space-time and could be curved in a dimension that you can't see and isn't really even so much there except mathematically. But in that dimension, uh, in that curvature, is the embodiment of gravity. And that led to a bunch of interesting things. First of all, it led to the idea that light or anything else that travels close to a gravitational field could go in a straight line in curved space and in that way apparently change its direction. Um, And that is something that uh, Arthur Eddington in 1917 1917, and his colleagues uh, confirmed. That's what made um, Einstein uh, the first rock star of physics. Okay. Okay. Now, a little bit more story uh, to this story. So then um, he also predicted in 1916 mathematically that gravitational waves, which are ripples of changing curvature of space caused by changing gravitational fields, okay, would propagate out and travel at, it just so happens, the speed of light, because that's the maximum speed that space-time can um, sustain, and uh, reach us. And then, as you pointed out in 1974, it wasn't really mathematically. It was an astronomical observation ah. of two stars in our, in our galaxy orbiting each other, losing energy by the emission of gravitational waves. At that point, um, we had experimental confirmation that gravitational waves exist. But what they weren't able to, to detect this way was how gravity changed by those, the emission of those gravitational waves. And in particular... Um, what Einstein says it does is it produces changes in the curvature of space, which you can think of as the stretching and squeezing of space. Okay. So that's what we set out to directly see. 
Um, so the direct detection of the stretching and squeezing of space. So when gravitational waves, which are filling the universe, they're all over the place, they're very weak, when they pass by uh, a sufficiently sensitive detector that can measure the distance between objects, in, that, in our case we use mirrors, because then we can measure the distance between them with lasers. Oh. Uh-huh, that's the laser interferometer part of LIGO, Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. So we measure the distance between these mirrors, and we first have to separate the mirrors by a lot, four kilometers, in the shape of an L. So there's actually three mirrors, one in the middle and two at the two ends. Actually, there's a lot more than three mirrors, but I'm simplifying it for you. And... Um, the uh, interferometer measures the distance between the center, the, which we call a beam splitter because it splits the light into two and sends one down one arm of the L and one arm down the other arm of the L and stretches and squeezes the space between them by a very tiny amount. So we separate the mirrors by a lot, four kilometers. The whole thing is in a vacuum system, the, highest, the largest high vacuum system in the world. Uh, we have two of these, again, and there are several more around the world. And when a gravitational wave goes by, it stretches and squeezes the space, and we measure that. But it's an incredibly tiny effect. How tiny? Over four kilometers, the distance between the mirrors changes by a thousandth of the diameter of a nucleus of an atom. Wow. And we can measure that. And in fact, we did. Because far, far away in a galaxy about a billion light years away... And about a billion light years ago, um, two black holes, very massive black holes, which were nothing but curved space-time, strongly curved space-time with enormous gravitational fields, were orbiting each other and losing energy by emitting gravitational waves and falling into one another and then crashed together and merged into one single giant black hole. Was that like the Big Bang? No. And it wasn't anywhere near as energetic as the Big Bang. However... It is the most energetic thing humankind has ever witnessed. So the Big but Bang happened and then that happened? Yeah, the Big Bang happened 13.7 billion years ago. And then after that, the universe expanded and cooled. And by the way, the Big Bang is a very confusing set of words. There's yeah. no bang. There was no explosion. There's no center. There's no edge. The Big Bang is just the beginning of the expansion of space. Got it. Which was discovered by Edwin Hubble in the 1920s uh, here in California um, uh, that all the galaxies are racing apart from each other. That was 13.7 billion years ago. It expanded for a while. Cool, the universe cooled enough to make atoms. The atoms cooled enough to make stars and galaxies. That was about several hundred million years after the Big Bang mm-hmm. that the first stars and galaxies formed. And then the very massive stars, the first stars that formed were very massive, and they exploded in gigantic supernova and collapsed into black holes. Wow. It's a fantastic story. Yeah. So these then, if that happens in, in pairs, which it does, then these black holes start in pairs. They orbit each other maybe for a few hundred million years or, or a few billion years even. It depends on the circumstances of their birth. And then when they merge together, they make a huge burst of gravitational waves. And one of those, and it happens all the time, but one of those happened a billion years ago. The gravitational waves traveled from there at the speed of light for over a billion light for a billion light years until it finally reached us on September 14th, 2015. Wow. Last September. 
passed through our detectors, stretched and squeezed the space that our detectors occupied. The detectors are laser interferometers. We picked up that stretching and squeezing of space, recorded it, analyzed it very, very, very carefully, convinced ourselves over months that we weren't making any mistakes at all. With what kind of certainty? I don't know, 99.9999% certainty that we got this right. And then we announced it months later, on February 11th of this year. And astonishingly to me, everyone got super-duper excited. Not just physicists, not just astronomers and astrophysicists, but lots of people did. It was billed as, oh, Einstein was right. But, of course, Einstein, we, always, we already knew Einstein was right about this. He wasn't right about everything, but he was right about this. We already knew that. But it was, if you like, the confirmation of the last really big and important prediction of his general theory of relativity. And we think a really, really good confirmation because we study the, the waves that, are, that come from these this black hole binary merger, and it's exactly as predicted by Einstein's equations. So we're happy, and this is just the beginning, because we're going to take more data, observe the sky for the next bunch of years, observe many more of these events, and collect enough information to learn how black holes and very massive stars are born, how they form, how they evolve, and how and their populations and properties throughout the universe. And in that way, as astrophysicists, we're going to learn a lot about these most interesting objects. Okay, I have so many freaking questions I could just explode. So is there like massive huge stars that are still being formed now? Yes, but the earliest stars were made of just hydrogen. They were able to make really big stars. Later stars are second generation. Our sun is a second generation, and it's a typical-sized star, one solar mass by mm. definition. These black holes were 30, 40, and when they merged together, over 60 solar masses. That's very special. But so I already had a different question, which I couldn't even comprehend how special it is what you just said. But that so, But the gravitational waves that you guys measured in this that confirmed them in February, how, those traveled how many light years away? One billion, well, 1.3 billion light years. And so, and they're moving at the speed of light, which is pretty fast. So they're pretty far away. Like that event was a far way away. Yeah. And the easiest way to say it is that they are 1.3 billion light years away. Light, one light year is the distance traveled by light in one year. And then... Could there be any other of those closer? Like that event, could there be any closer? We think that there are um, things like this happening throughout the universe. But here's the thing. Um, there's more space farther away than there is close by. Oh. Do you get that? Close by, you know, there's only so much volume. And when you go, like, if you go one uh, thousand light years, you see a thousand light years cubed amount of volume. If you go two light years... That's two cubed. That's eight, eight times as much volume. So there's more space farther away than close. So it's more likely that these events will happen. They're, they are still pretty rare. It's more likely that these events happen far away than close. And if they happen far away, by the time the waves get to us, they're weaker. That's the challenge. Got it. And then what a gravitational wave is, because we're experiencing them, you know, kind of, are, are we experiencing them all the time? Yes. Right now, gravitational waves are passing through our body all the time. 
Way too minutely weak for us to, uh, uh, for us to and so basically what you guys observed was these mirrors like kind of came together a little bit during a piece of the wave and then like like came further and then ex- like you know stretched right. and expanded like right so that's what that meant right and that was a tiny tiny effect for this for, th- for this loudest event we've ever seen it was um, the mirrors separated by four kilometers changing the distance between them by a fraction of a nucleus of an atom. And that's why the laser is so important because that is something that can like hook up to a computer so you can really see those like accurate, tiny. That's that's right. In fact, we can do more than see because the shaking, the stretching and squeezing is happening at hundreds of hertz, thousands of hertz. That's the audio band. We can take these signals and put them into a, uh, a speaker and transduce them into the audio. I mean, it's not sound, but we can take these signals, plug them in and listen to them. And here's what they sound like. Imagine these two black holes are orbiting each other slowly. And then as they lose energy, they fall into their shared gravitational potential well. That's the technical jargon. And they move faster. And then when they get close enough, they're going faster and faster. And then at the very end, they merge in some kind of... So the whole thing is a chirp. You want to do it with me? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So um, I'll do it, and you, you, you see if you can do it. It's going to go like this. Excellent. That's a chirp. That's what we heard. We talk about it as if it was sound. Of course, it's not sound. Sound travels in, a, in, in air uh, or solids. But, um, this but you're giving this a event a sound. Because the event really can be plugged into a, right. a speaker. And That's it sounds amazing. something like that. Okay, so then we're going to take like a two-second break. But before we do, I want to ask you uh, this question. It's, it might be a hard question. Einstein's theory of relativity in like three sentences. Einstein said that or space just slower and for time. Me. Yes. Fair enough. Yes. Space and time were connected together in this thing we called space-time. And embodied in that idea is the idea that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light because speed is about space divided by time, the amount of space traveled in a given time. And space-time connects those two things together, and that's what gives us a maximum possible speed called the speed of light. That's the special theory of relativity. The general theory of relativity says that gravity is caused by the curvature of space-time. And and what it says in one sentence is space-time matter tells space-time how to curve, and the curvature of space-time tells matter how to move. Uh, you guys, more on this after the break. Back with Dr. Alan Weinstein in just a couple minutes. to Podphone. What type of podcast are you looking for? You have chosen funny podcasts about bad movies. Rated R. May we recommend The Flophouse. Three friends talk about bad movies and make each other and you laugh. Rated R. The Flophouse is playing at your ears. If you download it right now or whenever. Rated R. To purchase tickets to The Flophouse. You don't need to do that. Just download it. The Flophouse. Rated R. For nudity, I guess. 
Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. And in studio this week, we have Dr. Alan Weinstein, who is an astrophysicist, right? Is that That's the title. At Caltech. At Caltech, um, who is part of the LIGO study. Yes. Um, and so we were just talking about, you know, Einstein's theory of relativity, and and hopefully you guys caught on to that. And then also talking talking about what it was that the um, LIGO study was measuring, or is measuring. Because it's still in... Or we, we're still taking measurements of this now. We're down right now to make our detectors even more sensitive. We'll be coming back in the fall, and we hope to detect a lot more events. Got it. And so then what is the significance of, I mean, obviously, you know, for your HuffPost readers and your BBC readers like me, it was what was such a headline about it was, I mean, here we've got this, like, this prediction that was made in 1916 scientifically, which, you know, you still got people, like, mourning their loved ones in the Titanic then. And you still, I mean, there is some, like, it's just crazy, like, what was going on then. And, and we weren't able to really get it pinpointed down all the way until February of 2016. And that's amazing that that, it, it's just, it's amazing. It's because it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously. But. What is the significance moving forward now that we know that that they're here? What can you geniuses do with with that information moving forward? Excellent. So, of course, this, as I mentioned earlier, this is the beginning. This is not, oh, we we discovered it. Now let's pack up and go home. Oh, no, no, no. This is this will has already opened up a new field of astrophysics, the astrophysics of objects in the sky that produce gravitational waves and perhaps only gravitational waves and can only be detected using gravitational waves. And it just opens up a whole new way of looking at the universe. It's new eyes, if you like, or if you like ears on the universe. In fact, we like to say that we're listening to the sounds of space-time for the first time. And of course, once you start listening, you don't stop. So we... Um, are going to continue taking data and continue making our detectors better and better and better. We might even have to build even newer, better detectors to go to the next step. And, of course, that's what we do. That's what scientists love to do, um, to explore the gravitational wave sky. And we have a list of things that we think are out there, and we're going to go looking for that list of things. And the first one, of course, is you know binary black holes orbiting each other and merging together. The And I'll quickly go through the list. The second is um, binary neutron stars. Neutron stars are even cooler in some ways than black holes. When neutron stars, which are essentially gigantic atomic nuclei, with the mass... Gigantic atomic... atomic nuclei. The nuclei of atoms, except instead of being atomic mass, you know, you need something like uh, trillions of, of trillions of trillions of them to make up us, okay? Um, they have the mass of the sun. Mm, so okay. they're big. They're very massive, and they have the size of Los Angeles. Actually, they're even smaller. Around the size of Los Angeles. What is the size of Los Angeles? Oh, let's say 20, 30 kilometers on a side. Okay? In diameter. 20, 30 kilometers. Is like one nuclei? One nucleus, 20 or 30 kilometers in diameter with the mass of the sun. This is an amazing Wow. Object. I mean, I can't even begin to yeah. tell you how amazing it is. But in any case... Um, and it has the strongest gravitational fields, the strongest electromagnetic fields, the strongest nuclear forces. It's just amazing in every way. I mean, okay, so because okay. so, basically what you're saying is, is like, you know, you and I are made up of like a trillion nucleuses of like different atoms and stuff that like makes up all of our stuff. 
But in these neutron stars, like one nucleus is like the size of Los Angeles, like one size. And the mass of the sun. And the mass of the sun. The sun's big. Yeah. <laughs> and the sun's very massive. Yeah. So that's why that star is like, that's why this neutron star is like so much cooler and more interesting than like normal stars. Fair enough. Yeah. And what's even cooler is that we won't have, we won't see one, we'll see two. And the two will smash together. Now, when two neutron stars smash together, that is one heck of a set of fireworks that is produced. And it spews huge quantities of matter out into interstellar space. And those huge quantities of matter coalesce into ordinary atoms. In fact, these neutron star murder, murder, mergers, <laughs> they're, they're dead stars, by the way. They're the result of, of large stars that go supernova and collapse into oh. a dead neutron star. Oh, okay. But now we have, if, you, if that happens in, in two stars that are orbiting each other, you end up with two neutron stars orbiting each other. They're two dead stars orbiting each other. When they smash together, it's a second death. Okay, a second death, like second breakfast, only much more yeah. violent. Okay, and um, uh, when they smash into each other, they produce a huge amount of material. Now, you and I, our bodies are made up of carbon and oxygen and nitrogen and stuff like that, and that was all formed in the core of a massive star that blew up in a supernova about six billion years ago, okay, and left behind a neutron star and spewed out all these elements which formed a, a, a second-generation star, our sun, and the planets, and all the stuff on the surface of the planets, including us. So we, as Carl Sagan loved to say, uh, are stardust. But, but, when two neutron stars smash together, they not only make carbon and oxygen and nitrogen, but they make heavier elements, mm. like gold and platinum and stuff like that. So my wedding ring, which is made up of gold, and it's still shining after six billion years, my wedding ring is not stardust. My wedding ring is neutron stardust. Ah. So when we study these bizarre, exotic, mysterious objects that are incredible but very far removed from the typical human experience, we're studying the origins of ourselves and our wedding rings. Right. Yeah. Okay, I'll go down the list. We also look for um, gravitational waves from the Big Bang. That's a long shot. I'm, I'm not going to bet much money on that. But because we could those, see that. Because those waves would have been so, like those waves would just be so far away and even tinier than the ones that we already. Too weak. Too weak. Um, for, with what, what's called the standard model of the Big Bang, mm -hmm. uh, it predicts that gravitational waves from the Big Bang are going to be too weak for our detectors. To, to detect. So we're busily at work trying to design an entire new generation of detectors that would be based in space. They would be much more expensive. Right. Uh, and they could detect the gravitational waves from the Big Bang. Because wouldn't the Big Bang be like those gravitational waves? Wouldn't they be going like away from us? Not The Big Bang was everywhere. And those waves are going in all directions. And oh. when we sit right here next to our detectors, the waves are coming at us, going by, and going off in another direction. See, that was the thing about astronomy that was so hard for me, like, you know, because it, it's so 3D, like, oh. which is so hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, it, it's it, it, science in general is mind expanding. That's, in fact, the point. <laughs> yeah. Right? We do science to expand our mind. Beyond another, our normal, ordinary human experience. I have more questions before we get to the end. So um, so you got 
two black holes orbiting each other can make gravitational waves. The Big Bang could have maybe made them. Two neutron stars could maybe make gravitational waves. What else do we think could make gravitational waves? You know what is most interesting? What we don't know anything about. Which is? The stuff we don't know anything about, which is the stuff we don't know. (laughs) It's the unknown. When you're doing this kind of exploratory science, You're opening up, well, we are opening up new senses on the universe, a new way of sensing the universe. We're listening to the vibrations of space-time. We don't know about the kinds of things that we will discover, about many of the kinds of things that we'll discover we can't anticipate because we have never opened our eyes or our ears to that kind of phenomena before. So the most exciting thing that we could and hopefully will find in the coming years is the unknown, the unexpected, the stuff that I don't know how to answer your question about. Right. So do you what do you think like in like a total like hypothetical world like is there any ways that you could see uh people in other scientific communities taking the data and all the stuff that you guys have taken from this and apply it to their fields? Like do you see any ways that like um this information could, like, impact, like, science that's going on, like, like... Sure, sure. I mean, there are lots of what we call spin-offs, you know, in, in basic research, which you don't do for anything, you know, terribly useful. You're just learning about the universe, that's all. Um, basic but research that is has... So, a, but that is so useful. It's useful for our minds. It's useful for our understanding. So let's say you want to do something like build a better microwave oven or a better chip for your computer, for your, uh, for your phone or something like that. For that, you would, for example... Um, want good seismic isolation, isolating your machinery from the vibrations of the earth. Well, we have to do that too. In fact, we have the best seismic isolation systems in the world. So a spin-off from our detectors would be adva- is advanced seismic isolation. Another spin-off is that we, um, in order to process our data, are looking for incredibly weak signals in noisy data. Well, we're not the only ones, okay? Lots of people collect data and look for weak signals, you know, national security kind of stuff. I don't know what goes on in the TSA. But, you know, there's lots of applications. They can learn quite a lot uh, from the way we have developed software and, and algorithms for pulling those tiny signals out. So there's lots of spin-offs like that. As for the astrophysics itself, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that we're going to find some way of harnessing the energy of these black holes, which are a billion light years away, or that we're going to do anything useful with them. That's not the point of what we do. We're just learning about it. There's a great quote. I'm, I'm not going to get it exactly right, okay? Um, scientists study the world as it is. Engineers create a world that never was. Hmm. Because they use the ideas from science, because they have to, because they have to work with what they got, which is nature. They can't invent magic. Uh, They use what scientists learn about nature to create new things. And that's one of the great values of basic research, is that it develops new understandings about nature, and then the engineers take over uh, to find some ways of inventing a new world um, using that information. So what are you most excited for um, when you guys go back online? What are you most excited for with it coming back online. I got to tell you, the unknown. It's, uh, I would be delighted if we saw something that we, that we had to look at it, stare at it, and say, what the heck is this? And then we go to a, we get back to work and we think hard and we tell everybody about it and brilliant minds think about what this could be and we discover something truly 
new and exciting about the universe that we've never could dream of before. And then have all of, because it took like 900 scientists to take part in this whole study. Am I correct? Yeah, more than that, actually. Over a thousand. Have, so over the thousand of you, have, has there ever been like, a, um, I'm so traumatized that I'm going to say it wrong again, LIGO, mm-hmm. right? Has there ever been like a LIGO conference where like all of you guys got together and like like talked about it all together or no? Mm. Three times a day? Like, but I mean, IRL, we, like in person. Oh, like in real life. Yeah, like okay. was there like... So we have um, uh, LIGO collaboration meetings in person. We uh, they've, they've been only two or three times a year for the last few years. We used to do them four times a year. Um, uh, so uh, we do that. But we also are on telecons because these people are, are distributed across the, the, the world. I mean, we have Europeans, right. we have Asians, we have Australians. We're, they're all over. And... Um, uh, we get on telecons. We use TeamSpeak, which uh, is also used for things like gaming. Um, and uh, when we made this observation on September 14th, uh, we started a TeamSpeak um, uh, conference and people got on, 100 people, 200 people, 300 people, TeamSpeak crashed. I love it because everyone wanted to be it. Like what everyone... It was just so exciting. It yeah, I love so that. Exciting. That is so cool. Yeah. We talk with each other all the time and that's crucial um, because we just can't leave any stone unturned when you do discovery science. You can't make mistakes. I mean, it's always possible. And in fact, we make mistakes all the time, which is why we have so many colleagues to check and correct and search and find ways in which mistakes might be made. Because in the end, when you have to announce, and it took us, you know, it's five months to, to announce, when you're ready to announce, you, you need a level of confidence that exactly. three or five people can't generate. And that that from the research that I did on it, it it definitely seemed like there was a definitely like a level of like commitment to like reality and making sure that there was nothing like too excited or too like ahead of what you guys knew to be true being put out. Like it was very like we must be cautious because science we make scientists make mistakes all the time, but we want to try to absolutely minimize that, especially for something as revolutionary and new as this. Which is so cool. So I really want to be like off course for the last for the last moment. And I don't know why my brain is going here, but it, it is. Um, you know, I is it's twenty sixteen and we're like not that far away from November. Like what is the scientific community and especially like your community, is anyone like scared about like where we're going politically and that where the funding could ha- like is there any like worry there or like or the scientists like, oh my God, like if Trump gets in, like, we're never going to have money to, like, do any more research. Like, do, is anyone worried about that or thinking that? Everybody has different opinions about politics, and I'm not going to get into that. But everybody in science cares about funding. And we, we're we funded by the National Science Foundation. A lot of science is funded by the um, Department of Energy and the National Institutes of Health. And the amazing thing about it is that these agencies have survived a lot of crazy stuff. Totally. Okay? And we're just banking, if you like, on them continuing to survive all the crazy stuff. People think, oh, the inertia in government is a bad thing. (laughs) Not really. When government does good stuff, inertia is a good thing. Keep doing the good stuff. Got it. So it's like basically science ain't going nowhere. We don't have to worry. You guys will make it work. (laughs) <laughs> we, you give us the money, we'll make it work. Got and it. we got to we gotta, um, be confident that, um, that uh, the government will continue to support it. And I don't even know why they support it, but they do, and we're grateful. And I think it will continue because I think there are enough wise heads around that it will. Thank God for that. And thank God for you coming in to teach me about this. I feel like I learned a lot, and I really am just so grateful you coming in. And uh, 
helping to educate the listeners about the the LIGO study and gravitational waves. It's my pleasure. Had a great time. Good. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness, and my guest this week, Dr. Alan Weinstein. You'll find links to LIGO and their Twitter and their Facebook on whatever device you're listening to the show on. And you can follow me on Twitter at The Gay of Thrones and on Instagram at Gay of Thrones. And also look for our Getting Curious group on Facebook. She's fierce. She's fun. Leave a comment. Ask us what you're curious about. We would live for that, especially on the tweeters. I love a tweet. I love a Getting Curious tweet. Hashtag your life away. We live for it. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. And if you enjoyed our show, please tell your friends about it. Leave us reviews on iTunes. We live for that. And world's greatest pizza party for Michael Holmes for the five-star reviews. And Getting Curious is produced by Christian Duaneus and Colin Anderson for MaximumFun.org. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.